Good morning. Today we are going to have what is called a standalone sermon, and it means just as it sounds. It is a stand alone. Generally, a standalone sermon means that it falls in between two sermon series, uh, and that is the case for today. We are going to take a short break from the series on the life of Paul, which actually that break began last week with, with Easter and Resurrection Sunday there. And then, God willing, next week we are going to start a new series that's entitled Spending Someone Else's Money. Who doesn't like the sound of that? That is, God willing, going to happen next week. So today is a standalone sermon. And when you think of that, it is... Whoa, thousands of verses, hundreds of topics. What do you pick to preach if you had just one Sunday to pick on anything from the Bible that you wanted to preach? It reminds me of one of those wall-to-wall candy stores. You enter it with your parents or your grandparents or a friend, and as you enter, they say, you can have anything in the store you want, but you can only have one thing. And you enter and you see the gummy bears. Ooh. But oh, a good piece of chocolate. You can never pass that up. Personally, I am a peanut butter guy. So that's got to hit the spot. And then, oh, what do you do with the fudge? Tis the dilemma of a one-time standalone sermon. They don't come along very often, so how do you decide? How do you, how do you fit everything in that you want to say? How long is this sermon going to be anyway? <laughs> do you preach a text on a topic, or do you put a topic with a text? Here's how I decided to pick a standalone sermon today. One, lots of prayer. Originally, I was planning on preparing a message that would follow Resurrection Sunday. I even announced it to the staff meeting, so surprise, staff, (laughs) that I was going to preach from John 21 with the title, Beachside Breakfast with Jesus. Sounds lovely, doesn't it? What a wonderful thing to do. The disciples had prepared, had a breakfast prepared by them, by Jesus for them, and it came, this breakfast came after the most thrilling fishing trip. So fishing and breakfast with Jesus. 153 fish were caught, and there waiting on the beach was a charcoal fire. Jesus standing there, and he's waiting, he's receiving the disciples. Peter was there. The the guy who cut off Bacchus' ear last week, he was there, and it was at this breakfast where Jesus restores the relationship and sends Jesus out on the call to feed the sheep feed the church the word of God. But God answered a prayer for me and said, no John 21, though I did kind of slip it in there, (laughs) no fishing trip and no beachside breakfast with Jesus. I think, number two reason, especially in standalone sermons, where there's no pattern to follow in a series, like you know what's coming next, like that, Um, that in a standalone sermon, what I am personally reading and what I am personally doing in devotional life definitely has a feel for what is about ready to be preached today. So I'm telling you, that's the truth. If you want to know what I'm reading about, I think it'll come out with sermon today. And third, I believe God 
has moved me to preach a standalone sermon that builds and encourages and comforts a person's faith that is based on facts of the Word of God and not feelings. In the past several months, it seems to me that there has been this heightened movement of a feeling faith that is sweeping across our nation in what we call the universal church, and it's all based on how a person feels rather than the facts of the Word of God. And what has caught my attention is from listening to people with sentences upon sentences and paragraphs upon paragraphs that heavily used, overly used, concerningly used the word feel. F-E-E-L. Feel. Maybe you've been listening to the same kind of talk. I feel that God exists to make me feel good. I feel like God wants me to do this or to do that, even though God states facts on what to do and what not to do. I feel like God isn't involved with things that are happening in the world today, and including my life, even though God proclaims facts that he is. And it seems and it sounds as if the beliefs are being built and based upon feelings, and that what God has to say about it doesn't really matter much at all. Now, it is clear from the Bible that people who do not know God, who do not care about God, nor his facts, they, they do not get or understand what it means to live a life of faith in Jesus. That is based on the Bible. That, that, is, that is easily understood in the Bible. That is taught. They lack spiritual discernment. The Bible makes it clear. They need Jesus to open their eyes. But... If God's people have a low view of God, their faith will be distorted or dim at best. A person's relationship with Jesus and knowledge of God is the most important thing a person can possess. And a growing relationship with Jesus and growing knowledge of God is what leads to seeing God as he really is big. It is better to have a small faith in a big God than to have a big faith in a small God. And if God is not properly grasped, the majesty the greatness, the holiness, the bigness of God will be replaced with small ideas of God. Like, I feel God wants me to be happy, so being obedient isn't that important. I feel like God isn't too concerned about holiness. I, I feel like that's a little outdated for these days. I feel like God is, is different to each and every person. Those are small God statements. God is not small, or wimpy, or puny, or limited, or weak. And because of these kinds of feelings, it leads to people who have a God who can't see or know the future. It leads to people having a God who just kind of sits back and watches, watches everything, but doesn't get involved. They, God just lets me live the way I want to live. It leads to people to a God who approves any and every lifestyle. Okay, sirrah, sirrah, whatever will be, will be. 
it just seems these last several months that there has been a lot of, I feel this, I feel that, being said without any basis of God's word attached to it. And I suppose this has existed forever, but in my world, it seems like it's at a heightened point for these last several months. Add up these three factors. My answered prayer, no John 21 personal devotions, and so much talk about a feeling faith. And the standalone sermon for today is Isaiah chapter 40, God's rhetorical questions. That's where I'd like for us to look to. Please turn your Bibles there. If you do not have one, it's on a device, and hopefully technology works and it'll be on the screens behind us. Isaiah chapter 40. Now, a rhetorical question is a question that's very obvious to understand. So obvious that it, an answer isn't even given because it is so easily understood. Is rain wet? <laughs> Do fish swim? Can birds fly? Do bar dogs bark? Do cats meow? Is the Pope Catholic? All examples of easy answers. Rhetorical questions are more of a statement than they actually are a legitimate question. And Isaiah 40 tells us the reality and facts of God using a series of rhetorical questions. So the point of this standalone sermon is to encourage you to see God as he is and that for that it will bring you great comfort in who he is. When the people of God are standing their strongest, it is because their view of God is at its highest. And when they are weak, it is because their view of God is low. I can personally attest to that being true in my life. And I want to encourage you that no matter where you are in your spiritual walk, that adding proper knowledge of God is the best thing that can ever happen to you and to me. If you are a seasoned seasoned, spiritually mature person, or if you are a young in the faith of Jesus person, or if you are a person who doesn't personally know the true God of the Bible at all, nothing is more important than adding knowledge or adding more knowledge of God to your life. So there are five things I pray that God will stir you from Isaiah chapter 40. First, God is is omnipotent. God is all-powerful. God is invincible. Look at verse 12 as Isaiah is going to fire off in like machine gun-like fashion some questions, rhetorical questions. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or who marked off the heavens with the span of his hand? Who has gathered the dust of the earth in a measure? Or who weighed the mountains in a balance? And who put the hills in the scales? This is a picture, this is the description of God being sole creator of heaven and earth. And it gives the idea that it is easy peasy for him to do. So easy. He just speaks with his mouth as we see in Genesis and things happen. Let there be light and there was light. Just Think if you could accomplish the same thing with a spoken word. Dishes, be done. Lawn, be mowed. House, be painted. 
car be repaired, taxes be filed. The idea of these rhetorical questions is that creation was entirely done by God and that it was like child's play for him. Easy. Look at some of these questions. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Do you see the bigness of the God there? All, all the waters of the ocean, all the waters of the lakes, all the waters of the streams, all the waters of the ponds are placed right there in the hollow of his hands. Correction. Hand. Who marked off the heavens with the span of his hand? That is the difference between your thumb and your little finger. What we used to say to each other, hey, give me a call. What the Hawaiians do to say, hey, hang loose, everything's groovy. God uses to measure the spans of the entire universe. How big is that hand? That's a big hand. You want to know why? It's a big God. That's the point. Anyone know who Johnny Bench is? Who was he? He's a catcher. He's a professional baseball player. He is known for having big hands. As a matter of fact, he holds the world record for holding the number, the most baseballs in his hand at one time. Not like balancing them, like I could stack them all up here, right? But by holding them in his hands, putting them between his fingers, and then being able to show it to you like this. Now, I am comfortably doing three. In the privacy of my own office, I did four. I could put myself in pain and get a fifth one in there. But he, you know how many he holds? Seven. Seven. Yeah, wow, seven baseballs. And that's exactly what we do. We ooh and we all, ooh, seven baseballs. And do you know what God does in the span of his hand? Oh, just sets the boundaries of outer space. You are more than welcome to come try at the end of service. Some ask me, what are we doing with the baseballs? Those who nod off. Be careful. <laughs> These are rhetorical questions. Isaiah doesn't even bother to answer them. The answer is obvious. Scientists believe that the fruit fly has the smallest brain known of all creatures. It barely beats some kind of weird worm. Now, I had to look all that up. But the point is this, that the answer to these questions are so obvious that even a fruit fly knows the answer. It's obvious. No one except God could have done such a creation. Who has gathered the dust of the earth in a measure? Wait a minute. God has a measuring cup that holds all the dust of the earth? How big is that cup? And how long does it take to collect? And what does he use to collect it with? There's a lot of dust on ceiling fans alone. How does he do this? I want you to get the point. Who weighed the mountains in a balance? Who put hills in the scale? Isaiah intends for us to see the bigness of all these waters on earth, that's a lot. The grandness of outer space, that's massive. The endless amount of dust throughout all the land, that's incalculable. And what Isaiah intends for us to see is that all these things that we see as really big are really small in comparison to God. 
You ever been on a big boat in the middle of the ocean and nothing's around? How big do you feel? Not at all. That's the point. What we see is big here on this earth. Isaiah is proclaiming, you should see the God who made them. The people of Isaiah's day, specifically the people of God of Isaiah's day, were in need of great comfort. They were weary with the heaviness and the oppression of life circumstances upon them. As a matter of fact, Isaiah 40, the chapter begins with, Comfort, comfort my people, Isaiah. And God says to Isaiah, Comfort, comfort my people by telling them about my awesomeness and my infinite power. And I would dare say that today it's the same exact situation for us, that nothing has changed. Life is hard. Circumstances are tough. So take great comfort in the omnipotence of God. This is the view that we need to have of God. And when our feelings don't align with, with this kind of stuff, then it's our feelings that need to be adjusted. There, there is no prayer too hard for God that he can't answer. There is no circumstances too difficult for God that he cannot overturn. There's no obstacle too hard that he cannot remove. There is no heart too hard for God that he cannot soften. And oh, there is no soul too hard for God to save. Second, God is omniscient. God is all-wise. God is unlimited in his wisdom. You put infinite power and unlimited wisdom together, and you have the superhero of all superheroes. See, the problem with the superheroes in our comic books and in our movies is that while they have some, some superpower, they lack something else. Well, let me introduce to you not a fictional superhero, but the one real, true superhero. His name is God, Yahweh. Look at verse 13. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Who gave him his counsel? Who did he consult with? Who gave him understanding? Who taught him the paths of justice? Who taught him knowledge? Who showed him the way of understanding? Another set of questions but not questions that require an answer, more rhetorical questions. The answers are obvious. But just for fun, participate with me anyway, will you? Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Oh, back up. Thank you. Participate with me anyways, will you? I didn't wait for your yes, so I guess technically you could have said, no, I'm doing this. So say yes, yes. Now, who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Okay, almost convinced. Who gave him his counsel? Who did he consult with? You're getting there. Who gave him understanding, taught him the paths of justice, taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Finally. Yes, you kind of believe that one. No one teaches God. No one tells him what's right and what's wrong. No one gives him updates of current events that he's not aware of. God has never learned anything. He's never had an aha moment. 
He's never used a dictionary, never uses an encyclopedia. He never Googles anything. He already knows about the fruit flies. He does not need a GPS. He knows everything because he's already ordained it all and everything to come to pass. God knows the best for every situation because he has perfect, unlimited wisdom. God never makes a mistake. God never needs a second chance to make something right. This is what the people of Isaiah's day needed to hear. And I believe it's what we need to hear as well. And God says to Isaiah, comfort the people by telling them about my unlimited wisdom. And again, I will say, if we feel that this is not true, well, it came right here out of God's book. So what needs to adjust? God's book or how we feel? Third, God is glorious. God is unmatched in his glory. God has no competition. More rhetorical questions are going to come in three verses, but first, verse 15. Look, the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are considered as a speck of dust in the scales. He lifts up the islands like fine dust. Lebanon is not enough fuel or its animals enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are considered by him as nothingness and emptiness. All of the nations up to the point of Isaiah's day are compared to God and they are compared as nothing. And today we can add to the list all of the nations that exist, have ever existed, that still exist, or that ever will exist, add up to nothing compared to God. Isaiah gives some vivid descriptions of the nations when compared to God. Look at this. Nations are like a drop in a bucket compared to the greatness of God. They can't compete. They are small. They are unimportant. I'm not sure that we can really fathom the size of the bucket that he's referring to, but the point is very obvious that it is a total mismatch, total mismatch to compare all of the nations together to the greatness of God. One drop in a bucket for them. And there is not a number that exists that can adequately describe God's drops in the bucket, let alone how big is that bucket in the first place. Or look at this slide. Nations are like a speck of dust on a scale compared to the greatness of God. That makes nations sound even less significant. How much does a speck of dust really weigh anyway? That much? I don't even know what that number means. The point is obvious. That nations are totally insignificant compared to God. And he goes on in verse 16, God is so glorious that even if you took every tree out of Lebanon, now Lebanon was known for its thick forest. They were known for their tree supplies to build with. If you took every tree out of Lebanon, and if you took every animal that could be found to make sacrifice to God, you couldn't get enough wood to burn or enough animals to sacrifice to justly 
bring glory to God that he deserves. Can, can our mind even process this? And here come the rhetorical questions. Verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare him with? An idol? A craftsman cast it? And a goldsmith overlays it with gold? And he casts for its silver chains? He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. When a nation, when the people, rich people, poor people, when they compare anything or anyone to God in the form of worship, it is called idolatry. And here in verse 19, the rich person hires a craftsman and he uses fine metals of gold and silver. In verse 20, the poor person can't afford that for an idol. So he just uses wood. But in both cases, the response, the result is the same. It's nothingness, emptiness. And it is no different today. The rich they make their own kinds of idols. They have their own brand names and styles. And the poor, they, they do the same. But the results are the same. Just as in Isaiah's day, they are nothing. Worshiping false idols, Isaiah says, is plain dumb. They offer nothing that lasts. They give nothing that lasts. And the tragedy is, is that when nations, when people worship idols, they shrink and they rob God of the glory that he is due. He created them to worship and give him glory. And they replace that with idols. This was true in Isaiah's day. It's true in our day. It really hasn't changed one iota. And yet God's counsel to Isaiah was this. Comfort the people by telling them about my great and unmatched glory. Four. God is sovereign. God is ruler. God is over everything. Look at verse 21. And if you've been following me in this chapter so far, what kind of questions do you think are going to come? Rhetorical. And here comes another rapid fire. Do you not know? Implying, yes, we know. Do you not hear? Yes, we hear. Has it not been told you from the beginning? Yes, it has. Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Yes, this is basic stuff. This is common stuff known by everybody. And here's the sovereignty in verse 22a. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. God is sitting above the circle of the earth doing what? Ruling and reigning. I love, 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 love. I can't put enough loves in there. The description that John gives from Revelation chapter 4. You got to see this. If you have not yet been encouraged this morning, you are going to be now. 4 verse 1. After this I looked... And there in heaven was an open door. The first voice that I heard, had heard speaking to me, like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. John gets invited to go to heaven, and as he enters this open door, look at what he sees, verse 2. Immediately I was in the Spirit, 
and a throne was set there in heaven. One was seated on the throne, and the one seated looked like jasper and carnelian stone. That's a reddish-colored gemstone. A, a rainbow that looked like emerald surrounded the throne. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the throne sat 24 elders dressed in white clothes with gold crowns on their heads. Flashes of lightning and rumblings of, the th of thunder came from the throne. Seven fiery torches were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Something like a sea of glass, similar to crystal, was also before the throne. Four living creatures covered with eyes in front and in back were in the middle and around the throne. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, 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 Lord God, the Almighty, who was, is, and who is coming. Now, I believe the only reason that John did not pass out and die from this experience was that he was in the Spirit. And there is no slide that we could put up on a screen that would accurately display what is actually happening right here. But, do you realize one day we will get to see all of that? All those who love Jesus in Christ? The first thing that John sees, and we commonly talk about, is, oh, those streets of gold. He does not see streets of gold. He does not see the buildings or the mansions. He does not see who is there and who is not there. The very first thing that has him captivated, has his undivided attention, has him locked in, the very first thing is the throne and the one who is sitting on it. And did you notice how everything else found its place around the throne, beneath the, the throne, surrounding the throne, behind the throne, below the throne? The throne and the one sitting upon it, it is the focal piece of heaven. God ruling and reigning. I am totally convinced that whatever I understand about the sovereignty of God, it falls way short of what it really is. And back to Isaiah, verse 22, we see God sitting on the universe, and he's looking down, and he sees the inhabitants on the earth as grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. I have taken one trip out west, and one night in the high altitude of Colorado, I spent the night under the stars in a tent. And it was as if I could touch the Milky Way and all the stars that were in it. And I read a verse like this, and I realize God sleeps in these galaxies. He doesn't sleep. He spreads his tent in these galaxies, and he hangs out here. He goes camping here all the time. Verse 23, who brings the princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness? Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. And when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. Everything looks like grasshoppers. Big, powerful people, big, important people, princes and rulers are like plants that are barely surviving. They're flimsy and they're weak. And when he blows, 
They are gone. God is sovereign over all people and all things. I totally do not get understanding all of the sovereignty of God. How can I? I am so limited in knowledge. I don't even know about the fruit fly stuff. And then when it comes to these horrendous acts of evil and sudden and tragic deaths and broken relationships and final despair, I try to give a a biblical answer. We, We try to wrap our minds around this. It means, though, that when my feelings and my thoughts don't align with his reality, like what we see in these verses... It means either God's sovereignty is wrong or my understanding of his sovereignty is wrong. We have all experienced the harsh sting of this fallen world. But to limit God's sovereignty to only what we can understand, that would be tragic. That would be plain wrong. Instead, take great comfort and believe. Believe that he actually does know the numbers of hairs on your head. Believe that what man intends for evil, God intends for good. Believe that he has ordained every day, every circumstance, every breath of your life. And believe that his ways are superior and better than your ways, even when we do not understand them, even when they are confusing, even when they hurt. Believing that God is big enough and strong enough and smart enough to handle it. And he will do it with perfect power, perfect wisdom, bringing his name perfect glory. The Holy One asks in verse 26, and here is your homework for the week, actually for the rest of your life. I like that, teachers. Go outside, look up, and see who created these. He brings out the starry hosts by number. He calls, them all, he calls all of them by name. Because of his great power and strength, not one of them is missing. I see it? Well, oh, pictures don't do it, per, do, do it justice. Go outside, look up, marvel at the one who made everything that you can see and everything that you cannot see that goes beyond it. And worship God. Trust him with your life who makes stuff like this and it's easy easy peasy for him fifth god is graceful god is amazing grace verse 27 jacob why do you say in israel why do you assert my way is hidden from the lord and my claim is ignored by my god god answers a question by asking a question The people are asked, God, why have you hidden yourself from us? Where are you? God, why are you ignoring us? Why aren't you helping us? 
We have certainly asked questions like this before, haven't we? God, where are you? Don't you see what's going on in my life, God? God, are you hearing me? God, don't you care? And God answers their questions with rhetorical questions. Verse 28, do you not know? Have you not heard? Yahweh is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth. He never grows faint or weary. There is no limit to his understanding. He gives strength to the weary and strengthens the powerless. Youth may faint and grow weary, and young men may stumble and fall. This is true for everybody right here, that everyone falls into this category. There will be a time where even the strongest and the mightiest people will grow weak. All the times we sit on the park bench as we get older and go, oh, if I only had half the energy of all those kids. Those kids are going to grow weak. The point is clear. 31, but those who trust in the Lord, and this is where the great divide happens. This is the proverbial fork in the road. Those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. Eagles soar through life. They are known for their strength and their courage in dangerous and turbulent weather. And they soar above it. And they are also known for being warriors Fierce protectors. And that's the imagery here. That's the life of a Christian. Life to live. These people are are living and they're walking and they're running on the strength, physical strength, emotional strength, mental strength, spiritual strength. All of it is provided by, sustained by, and renewed by the all Glorious, all-powerful, all-wise, all-sovereign, all-gracious God and Creator. Be encouraged. Be comforted. Take great joy in God and His rhetorical questions. Let's pray. God... Creator, ruler, omnipotent one, omniscient one. All glorious one, sovereign one. The one who is deserving of all glory. Help us comprehend who you are. Help us have big thoughts of you. Forgive us when we make you small and when we doubt and when we turn away.
Father, I ask that you would do the miracle of having people come to know Jesus, your son, and to put their faith and their trust in them. And that you continue to do the miracle of sanctifying us, like having us grow in this relationship with you and to grow in the knowledge about you. Lord, plant in our hearts and in our minds, in our soul, the true facts of who you are. Guard us from falling prey to our feelings. We are so prone to wander. Lord, just have your effect on this standalone sermon. And may it be praising to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.